only dark rooftops, and an occasional light here and there. But there was a glow in the sky over Oxford Street, and you could hear the noise of traffic far away, muffled by the houses and squares in between. Just around the corner in George Street, she heard a taxi stop, the slam of its door, and the sharp ping as the driver shut off the motor. It might so easily be Jimmy, knowing that she was coming home alone knowing how happy it would make her if he just came along for ten minutes to say good-night. The taxi, with a grind of its gears, started up and drove away. She could hear it for quite a while until there was silence again. It might still be Jimmy. He wouldn't be so extravagant as to keep a taxi waiting. He might at this very moment be coming up in the lift. In a few seconds she would hear the lift doors opening, and then the front doorbell. She listened, holding her breath. He might, of course, come up the stairs in order not to be seen by the liftman. Jimmy was nothing if not cautious. She waited, holding on to the windowsill tight to prevent herself from going to the front door. There was no sound, and presently her tension relaxed, and after rather a disdainful glance at herself in the glass over the mantelpiece, she went and opened the front door anyhow. The landing was deserted. When she came back into the room again, she discovered, to her great irritation, that she was trembling. She sat on a chair by the door, bolt upright, like somebody in a dentist's waiting room. It wouldn't have surprised her if a bright, professionally smiling nurse had suddenly appeared and announced that Dr. Martin was ready for her. Again she folded her hands in her lap. Someone had once told her that if you sat still as death with your hands relaxed, all the vitality ran out of the ends of your fingers, and your nerves stopped being strained and tied up in knots. The frigid air in the kitchen suddenly gave a little click and started whirring. She stared at various things in the room, as though by concentrating, identifying herself with them, she could become part of them and not feel so alone. The pickled wood Steinway, with a pile of highly coloured American tunes on it, the low table in front of the fire with last week's sketch and bystander, and the week before last's New Yorker, symmetrically arranged with this morning's Daily Telegraph, folded neatly on top. The Chinese horse on the mantelpiece, very aloof and graceful, with its front hoof raised as though it were just about to stamp on something small and insignificant. Nicky had said it was Ming, and Eileen had sworn it was Sung, because she had once been to China on a cruise and became superior at the mention of anything remotely oriental. There had been quite a scene about it, culminating in Martha saying loudly that she'd settle for it being gong or pong if only everybody would bloody well shut up arguing and give her a drink. Diana remembered how Jimmy had laughed. He was sitting on the floor next to Barbara. She looked at the empty space in front of the fireplace and saw him clearly, laughing, with his head thrown back and the firelight shining on his hair. That was during rehearsals, before anything had happened, before the opening night in Manchester and the fatal supper-party at the Midland, when he had come over from his party at the other end of the French restaurant to tell her about the rehearsal for cuts the next afternoon. She remembered asking him to sit down and have a glass of champagne, and how politely he had accepted, with a rather quizzical smile, almost an air of resignation. Then the long discussion about Dooza and Bernhardt, and Jonathan getting excited and banging the table, and Jimmy sitting exactly opposite her, where she could watch him out of the corner of her eye, listening intently to the conversation and twiddling the stem of his wine-glass. They had all been dressed, of course. 
Jonathan and Mary had come up from London especially for the first night, also Violet and Dick and Maureen. Jimmy was wearing a grey flannel suit and a blue shirt and a navy blue tie. Occasionally the corners of his mouth twitched as though he were secretly amused, but didn't want to betray it. Then he had caught her looking at him, raised his eyebrows just for the fraction of a second, and with the most disarming friendliness, patted her hand. You gave a brilliant performance tonight, he said. I felt very proud to be there. That was the moment. That was the spark being struck. If she had had any sense, she'd have run like a stag. But instead of running, instead of recognizing danger, there she had sat, idiotically smiling, warmed and attracted. Not content with having had a successful first night and having given a good performance, not satisfied with the fact that her friends, her close, intimate friends, had trailed all the way from London to enjoy her triumph with her, she had had to reach out greedily for something more. Well, God knows she'd got it all right. Here it was, all the fun of the fair, the fruits of those few weeks of determined fascination. She remembered with a slight shudder how very much at her best she had been, how swiftly she had responded to her new audience, this nice-looking, physically attractive young man at least ten years younger than herself. How wittily she had joined in the general conversation. She remembered Jonathan laughing until he cried at the way she had described the dress rehearsal of Lady from the East when the Japanese bridge had broken in the middle of her love scene. All the time, through all the laughter, through all the easy, intimate jokes, she had had her eye on Jimmy, watching for his response, drawing him into the circle, appraising him, noting his slim wrists, the way he put his head on one side when he asked a question, his eyes, his thick eyelashes, his wide, square shoulders. She remembered saying good-night to him with the others as they all went up in the lift together. Her suite was on the second floor, so she got out first. He was up on the top floor somewhere, sharing a room with Bob Harley, one of the small part actors. She remembered also, looking at herself in the glass in her bathroom and wondering while she creamed her face, how attractive she was to him really, or how much of it was star glamour and position. Even then, so early in the business, she had begun to doubt. It was inevitable, of course, that doubt, particularly with someone younger than herself, more particularly still when that someone was assistant stage manager and general understudy. A few days after that, she had boldly asked him to supper in her suite. She remembered at the time being inwardly horrified at such flagrant indiscretion. However, no one had found out or even suspected. He accepted with alacrity, arrived a little late, having had a bath and changed his suit, and that was that. Suddenly the telephone bell rang. Diana jumped, and with a sigh of indescribable relief, went into her bedroom to answer it. Nobody but Jimmy knew that she was coming home early. Nobody else would dream of finding her in at this time of night. She sat on the edge of the bed, just in order to let it ring once more, just to give herself time to control the foolish happiness in her voice. Then she lifted the receiver and said, Hello, in exactly the right tone of politeness, only slightly touched with irritation. She heard Martha's voice at the other end, and the suddenness of the disappointment robbed her of all feeling for a moment. She sat there rigid and cold, with a dead heart. 
My God, Martha was saying, you could knock me down with a crowbar. I couldn't be more surprised. I rang up Jonathan and Barbara and Nicky and finally the Savoy Grill. This is only a forlorn hope. I never thought for a moment you'd be in. Diana muttered something about being tired and having a matinee tomorrow. Her voice sounded false and toneless. Martha went on. I don't want to be a bore, darling, but Helen and Jack have arrived from New York, and they're leaving on Saturday for Paris, and they've been trying all day to get seats for your show, and the nearest they could get was the fourteenth row, and I wondered if you could do anything about the house seats. With a great effort, Diana said, Of course, darling, I'll fix it with the box office tomorrow. You're an angel. Here are Helen and Jack. They just want to say hello. There was a slight pause. Then Helen's husky, southern voice. Darling. Diana put her feet up and lay back on the bed. This was going to be a long business. She was in command of herself again. She had been a fool to imagine it was Jimmy, anyhow. He never telephoned unless she asked him to. That was one of the most maddening aspects of his good behavior. Good behavior to Jimmy was almost a religion. Excepting when they were alone together, he never for an instant betrayed by the flicker of an eyelash that they were anything more than casual acquaintances. There was no civility in his manner, no pandering to her stardom. On the contrary, the brief words he had occasion to speak to her in public were, if anything, a trifle brusque, perfectly polite, of course, but definitely without warmth. Helen's voice went on. She and Jack had had a terrible trip on the Queen Mary, and Jack had been sick as a dog for three whole days. Presently Jack came to the telephone and took up the conversation where Helen had left off. Diana lay still, giving a confident, assured performance, laughing gaily, dismissing her present success with just enough disarming professional modesty to be becoming. But, Jack, dear, it's a marvellous part. Nobody could go far wrong in a part like that. You wait and...